0: This is Dan Watson, Uncancelled. Let's go. It's time for the latest in the battle to BPM with top Conservative Minister Penny Mordaunt. And it's finally over. Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak completed their final stint in a string of Tory leadership hustings at Wembley in London tonight.
1: In 2019, listeners to my LBC show heard one Boris Johnson say, there will be no new taxes, read my lips. Can you say tonight, read my lips, no new taxes, on your oh. administration, please?
2: Yes, no new taxes.
1: No new ta- <laughs> <clears throat>
0: ah, That was a good moment. But, of course, the race for number 10... Could have been so very different if just nine more Tory MPs had sided with Penny Morden instead of Truss during the Westminster ballot. Brexit in Penny, who was struck by a string of harsh criticisms over the course of the campaign, finished a close third in the race thanks to a previously glittering political career that's seen her serve as the MP for Portsmouth North since 2010, become the first female defence secretary in 2019 and land her current trade minister job last year. And while Boris Johnson has just around 120 hours left before he leaves Downing Street for good, we could easily have been looking at Royal Navy, Reservist Penny, starting her own premiership next week. But she narrowly suffered defeat and gracefully bowed out of the competition, now throwing her weight behind Boogie's favorite Liz Truss. And I'm delighted to say Penny joins me in the studio. So Penny, look, I'll talk about Truss and the campaign and what's next in just a moment. But I actually wanted to start with the personal tonight because it must be quite hard for you to get your head around how close you came to be prime minister because all of the polling showed that if you had made it into the final two, you were going to thrash Rishi Sunak. So have you accepted it? Are you there yet? Such a small number of MPs, if you'd convinced them, you could have been looking at entering number 10 next week.
2: I have come to to terms with the fact that I I wasn't in the final two, of course. And, you know, you look at the campaign you run, you you do your best, but, but ultimately this is about getting a prime minister for the country, and I could have just stayed neutral and let mm. people get on with it. But I think this is this is too important a to contest. It's always important, but at this moment, yes, for the country, indeed. And it's I will vital. come
0: to that in just a moment. But in terms of your campaign, do you have any regrets given how close it was? Is there anything you no. wish you had done differently?
2: I think this is a um, this is a, a waste of energy to uh, to to have those regrets. I. I don't regret that I ran, I hope I helped uh, shape the the contest. And um, I, I think it's important that we try and shape the future and we focus on the future and that's why I've declared for Liz.
0: Do you think it was unfair that you were branded the woke candidate? Because that is what seemed to spark the change in Fortune, specifically around the fact that in 2018, in Parliament, you said a trans man is a man and a trans woman is a woman. Is that fair? And do you stand by Look, that comment now?
2: this is politics. Um, your opponents are going to say all sorts of uh, uh, things about you. I can only control my own campaign. I didn't diss the other candidates in my campaign, which I joke, you know, is why I came they third. They diss you. Uh, well, they may have, but that's their that's their business. Yeah. And at the I end mean, of this, we've woke? got to co- Are you woke? Look, is that fair? Dan, let me let me address this. Um, I, I was the only candidate in that contest that has won a Labour working class seat Mm. and held it and has a decent majority in that seat now. And I refer you to their judgment, those people that elected me. Um, They don't vote for people that are nonsense, head in the clouds uh, individuals. Mm. I'm very practical. I wish we'd talked a lot more about uh, the NHS than certain social issues in the campaign, which are not uh, really the concerns of most people in this country. And um, that's why I've I've won a Labour seat. So, yeah, there was a lot of unfair things that went on, but there's no point in dwelling on that. We've got to move on. We've got to look look ahead. On the trans
0: issue specifically, though, do you accept that when it comes to those really hot-button, difficult issues like women's sport, like safe spaces for females, toilets, changing rooms, hospital wards, that actually a trans woman isn't a woman.
2: So look, let's let's address this issue, right? And I've said this in the campaign, I've said it uh, before the campaign. I am biologically a woman. Mm. Uh, I know the difference between a man and a woman. I can't believe we've had these debates uh, during this contest. There's been far too much bollocks in every sense of the word (laughs) discussed, quite frankly. Um, I understand this because as you alluded to, I train against men. I understand the biological differences, which is why uh, when I held the Equalities Brief, I raised the issue about sport years ago uh, and, uh, and why I completely have always uh, said that, uh, we need to look at the science in this. We need to listen to the sporting bodies and they need to have the confidence mm. to make the right decisions. But, and this is why everyone gets their knickers in a twist because there are some people who were born, for example, men who legally are recognized as women. And when we're writing law, that is really a very important factor. Um, Trans women aren't biological women like me, uh, but they deserve respect, they deserve kindness, and I will always take that approach in in my politics.
0: And it is interesting you talk about some of the issues that have been discussed during this campaign, because one of the reasons people like my great friend at the Daily Telegraph, Alison Pearson, backed your campaign Mm -hmm. right at the beginning, is that she knew you had the best hope of beating Keir Starmer at a general election. Do you worry that at times your party has maybe gone too far down the conservative rabbit hole during this campaign and hasn't thought about the big picture? Because we are facing and I talk about it every night a very real threat of a coalition from hell later the SNP, the Lib Dems and the Greens. That is a realistic possibility.
2: And we, look, one of the strengths of the Conservative Party, and we're we're the most successful political party in this country's history, Mm -hmm. is because we're a broad church and because we have tended to hold the centre ground. And the centre ground moves around a bit in politics. Um, But we've appealed to uh, the centre of of where the country is at any given moment. I don't think that's changed. And I think the challenge for the new leader is to build that team. It's to be able not just to reach across the Conservative Party and bring it together, but to reach across the country and to be relevant to people. And I think Liz can do that.
0: Yeah, so, so, so why Liz over Rishi?
2: So look, I I like both of them immensely. I have a lot of respect for them. They're good conservatives. They love their country. And uh, I I wish them uh, well uh, in this campaign and beyond. But I do think we're at a real inflection point for our country right now. And if we've got all of this COVID backlog to deal with in the NHS, a huge amount we have to do on education to enable uh, children and young people to thrive. Plus, All of the ambition that the British people had in 2016 and 2019 when they gave us that huge majority to really maximise the opportunities from from Brexit and take this country forward. That's a huge list of things in someone's entry. And Liz is right. Business as usual is not going to do that. Uh, And I think that she has a plan of how to deliver on that, how to get us out of the situation we're in, but also deliver on those Brexit opportunities, but also I think she offers a bit of hope as well because no government, no matter how good it is, can do anything on its own. We've got to inspire people, we've got to win back trust uh, and we've got to ensure that we're listening and we're being motivated by their priorities.
0: My God, we need that because the challenges in the country are immense at the moment. We know that. I've been speaking earlier in the show tonight about lawless Britain and this policy exchange report that suggests there needs to be a massive shakeup of the police. Do you think the police have become too woke? I mean, do you approve of them taking the knee and dancing the Macarena?
2: Look, I wanna take slightly controversial view on this because I spend a lot of time with my police, what they do during the day but also riding shotgun with them on patrol at night and i can tell you the police in my area the the thing that takes up their time and pulls them away from responding to that burglary and all of those things it's going to deal with someone that's just called a suicide in because there's not a mental health crisis team it's about finding a, a six year old kid roaming the streets at night uh, because you know the social care plan isn't in place for that individual. If we want to really help the police do their job better, those are the things we need to concentrate on that are eating up their time. I don't agree with every policing plan that's ever been written. In fact, in the last few days, I've criticized my own, uh, well, a policing plan, not in my own area, but uh, in a in a neighbouring constabulary, because they did something that I thought was wrong. Um, they they prevented a, a local newspaper going to to press and being delivered because it wasn't viewed as an essential service. Mm. Uh, we had because the, of these eco terrorists. The, because of the eco terrorists. So I, and I've I've made a complaint about that and I, I want that reviewed and I know Priti Patel mm. feels the same way about that. So I don't agree with every single thing uh, that's in every single policing plan. But, you know, we've just got to recognise these these people do an mm. incredibly difficult job yeah. in very difficult circumstances. And I think if, we, if we're if we going to support them properly, we need to look at those other services that they are picking yeah. up the, do, the loose ends they, from.
0: They seem to pick a lot of the wrong battles at the moment because your constituency is actually covered by the Hampshire police. Yeah. And recently they've been in the headlines because they arrested a guy, a, a, a veteran, because he had... Posted on social media, a, a, a tweet that Lawrence Fox had posted, and this was this was it going on. Actually, Liz, trust tonight you're obviously at the husting. She was very clear. Mm. She said the police should be focusing on solving violent crime, not policing people's tweets. Do you agree? And do you think this was police? Yeah. Overreach? Look,
2: I I think that um, Liz Truss is right on this, and. What, what you have is you end up with lots of members of the public um, using up police time by mm. if they've got a row with a neighbour. You know, the, the, the row goes on social media and that eats up uh, police time. But again, all of these sorts of issues are, are issues that should be being dealt with by other mm. local services about it's about that community cohesion, um, or it's someone with a mental health uh, issue that should be being dealt with and supported by those services. So yeah, Liz Liz is absolutely right uh, on that front. But I would just say, if we're going to criticize the police, let's get this in perspective. They're not doing this all the time, uh, or, mm. you know, dancing the Macarena, you know, no. No, every, they, every weekend. They're, they're brilliant not,
0: police. They are doing an amazing job, and, the and police in this country, we should, and they say, that. We should a- say that. We should say that occasionally. Uh, look, just finally, I want to talk about your book, because during the campaign, it caused a lot of criticism, and a lot of controversy. And, and one of the things, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but one of the things that people were very concerned about uh, were your links to Bill Gates. Because, of course, he is someone who has been very controversial over the past couple of years. His work with the World Economic Forum has worried a lot of people over the COVID pandemic. Um, do you just want to explain, because I don't think you've ever been asked about it before, what your relationship with Bill Gates is? And do you think he has too much of an influence on British politicians?
2: So I don't think he has not too much of an influence on British politicians. I think he's only come to Parliament a few times. Um, in the in the whole time that that I've been there, I got to know him through international development. and he made uh, some investments in some of our universities to help uh, pest control and uh, crop yields and all sorts of things to help uh, our farmers, but also farmers overseas as well. So that's how I, I know him. Uh, and he has invested a huge amount in in all kinds of charitable ventures uh, around the world. I think he's a, he's a good philanthropist. I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, um, but <laughs> I think sure. by and large, the world is a better place for having had Bill Gates in it.
0: Okay. And uh, do you know what job you're going to get yet?
2: There. there's this no nobody does uh, re, reshuffles are crazy um, I, win. I I I think that she will do it um, and I think that she's captured the imagination of not just our electorate for this contest but the country and the the commitment she's made tonight I, I think are very welcome
0: and I think the key point you made earlier is we need hope we think that is what she is hopefully going to deliver if she's yeah
2: she'll be a great prime minister
0: penny morning trade. Minister and former Tory leadership candidate, thank you so much. It's time now for cancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancelled culture sweeping the rest of the media. The dust still hasn't settled after ex-Newsnight presenter Emily Maitlis claimed last week that, quote, Tory cronyism has infected the heart of her former employer, the Brexit-bashing corporation, otherwise known as the BBC. Look.
2: Put this in the context of the BBC board, where another active agent of the Conservative Party, a former Downing Street spin doctor and former advisor to BBC rival, GB News, now sits.
0: The criticism comes from someone who has, of course, always been steadfastly impartial while being paid for by us at the Beeb. Not watch.
2: Bennett Cummings broke the rules. The country can see that, and it shocked the government cannot. The longer ministers and prime minister tell us he worked within them, the more angry the response to this scandal is likely to be. At what point do you say, actually, democracy is not as important as the future economy and stability and prosperity of the country right now? It is consistent casual racism, not casual racism week at all. after week from it's you. Not That's what you What Brexit vision will be on your
3: manifesto then? Well, Does- it, we we will decide what our manifesto position is as we normally do.
0: Rod Little, is is, is Emily Maitlis in Cloud Cuckoo Land uh, to suggest the BBC is pro Tory?
1: Well, I, I think we ought to take our hats off to her, Dan, in that she has at least, perhaps through that brilliant journalistic career which she honed at the BBC, discovered the Tory in. The BBC, uh, which is <laughs> presumably she Robbie Gibb. Uh, yes, that's who she we know about Newsnight. We, knew about, we know about the program that she worked for. Uh, we know that there wasn't a single person on that program who voted in favor of Brexit. Uh, we know that for the last 12 years, until very recently, and Newsnight has got very, very good just recently, it's uh, actually a program worth watching again. Uh, I know it clashes with you, Dan, so I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah, I'm just Uh, like,
0: I'm not gonna say anything, Rod. Move swiftly along, okay? (laughs) It it, it has got a lot better,
1: but in the period from 2008 to 2022, its audience declined from 900,000 to 200,000. I mean, that is phenomenal. Never has there been a better example of the term go woke, go broke, than with Newsnight. Because under Senator Esme Wren, and with grandstanding presenters like Emily Maitlis, and uh, what's his name, Goodall, and all all the other lot, all the other lot there. Lefty Lewis.
0: Lefty Lewis, we call him.
1: Lefty, yeah. But the the entire production team. And I was told this when I came out of that interview you showed a clip of, that, you know, the, the, the production team had thought I shouldn't be allowed on the programme in the first place. And that was the reason that I was uh, uh, subjected to abuse, which, for which Emily Maitlis later had to apologise. Uh, because this is the point. She knows. She must know. I don't think she's particularly a particularly brilliant uh, journalist. Uh, if you heard that dreadful intro to the Dominic Cummings stuff with that laboured "not" at the end of every sentence... You know, I'd be sacked if I tr- tried anything like that because it's just so hackneyed and dull. Um, but she can't be so stupid as to think that the BBC hasn't got a distinct left-of-centre liberal bias. Now, you know, th- that to me is evident less in the news and current affairs, although it undoubtedly is there, but certainly in all the dramas, in the comedians yeah. they have on, in all the shows they have, in its Who. ethos in the way it tries to stop the last night of the proms going ahead with the, with the traditional ending, uh, in getting rid of people like Jeremy Clarkson, Andrew Neal, it does not like people who do not toe its ideologically very, very, very liberal line. And I think the problem for Emily Maitland, and I'm glad she's got off to, to do a programme where she can indulge in her uh, uh, infantile and stunted worldview, Uh, because that's clearly what she's wanted to do for a very long time. Um, I think her problem when she was at Newsnight is that she, and this is true of much of the BBC, was surrounded in this bubble, firstly, of people who work at the BBC and all who, who all agree with her. And secondly, on Twitter, she's got this big Twitter following who who would write in every week and say, oh, well done, well done for standing up to, to the bigots, well done for standing up to those awful Tories. And she thinks, she somehow seems to think that that's the world, which which makes me think she is very, very stupid. And yeah, I've met her, you know, and she, she doesn't seem in a person-to-person way particularly stupid. But the stuff she comes out with is is genuinely deranged. It is genuinely mad. Um There seems to me it's incontestable that the BBC has a left of centre bias. It's not me saying that. It's a whole bunch of objective reports from objective institutions and unobjective institutions, including the BBC, have found that it's biased on a whole range of issues. It is also the view of the current Director General, Tim Davey, who, when he came in, said, yeah, there is a bit of a a cultural bias here, and we've got to do something about it. And the very first thing he did was reverse the decision on the last night of the proms. Everybody says so, everyone who has left the BBC and got to work somewhere else, all the talent, the Jeremy Paxmans, the Clarksons, the Michael Burks, the John Sargent's, all say... It's a left of centre bias. You know, there is no doubt whatsoever in anyone's mind, anyone who looks at that corporation through neutralise, and it was the same when I was there, it's got a left of centre bias. So what what was Um, she
0: playing at then, Rod? What was she playing at? What was this about? Because, of course, she's speaking to a room of TV industry elites. All of the people in that room at the Edinburgh TV Festival, they make the decisions about what we watch on mainstream television.
1: Sure. Well, I think it's one of two things. I mean, I think there's a few things going on here. First, she she desperately wished to get off her chest uh, a number of complaints about the BBC, which had undoubtedly been festering, given the number of times that she was told to apologise. So she was told to apologise to me. She never did, uh, and Newsnight never did. Uh, they, it was quite clear there was an internal BBC report which which concluded that she had been grossly uh, out of line in the way she interviewed me. Similarly, the stuff about Dominic Cummings. Similarly, all those clips you showed. She keeps being told. She kept being told that she would have to apologise. Never did. Never thinks she's doing the wrong thing. She has never ever been in the wrong. And I think that I think that she's been captured by the absolutism uh, of the of the middle class liberal left, which thinks it is impervious to criticism and could never do anything wrong. And I think that was part. Of what she was talking about uh, at, the, at that festival, the other side of it, I think, is that maybe she is that dim. <laughs> maybe she is. Yeah, perhaps, I mean, perhaps she is Rod.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Rod Little, yeah. thank you so much, you have Rod. Wonder, don't you? I... You have to. No, you do have to because it was such a bonkers claim, Rod Little. Uh, we will speak next week, Rod. Thank you so much. <music> Brendan O'Neill is tonight's outsider. Now, according to bombshell new claims, ISIS bride Shamima Begum was trafficked into Syria by a Canadian spy also working for the Islamic State terror group. Making the explosive allegations in the secret history of the Five Eyes, Richard Kerbaj claims that 15-year-old Begum, along with two friends, met Mohammed al-Rashid at the main Istanbul bus station in 2015 and was smuggled into ISIS-controlled Syria. The book alleges that during the massive international search launched by Met Police to find the girls, Canada failed to inform the UK of its role in the affair. It adds that when the Canadians finally came clean, fearing being exposed. They then asked the Brits to cover up their involvement. So here's former Home Secretary Sajid Javid, who banned Begum from the country in 2019, being very cryptic about the situation last year. I'm not going to get into details of uh, of the case, but what I will say is that you certainly haven't seen what I saw. Let me say this: I think if you did, if you did know what I knew, as I say, because you are sensible, responsible people you would have made exactly the same decision. Of that, I have no doubt. But the claims have very predictably resulted in fresh calls for Begum to be allowed to return to the UK, with her lawyers saying there will be a legal hearing in November to challenge the removal of her citizenship. Now, Begum, who claims to be de-radicalised and remains in prison in a Syrian camp, continues to plead for the mercy of the British public. This is what she told us in January. If the government come and spoke to you, would you be willing to tell them how it happened?
1: Of course, yeah, I actually think it's important that they know so that they can pre- prevent it in the future for other people.
0: Because you said Boris doesn't, um, it, it doesn't know. You obviously know Boris is there. What yeah. do you mean by that? He, do you think the British government...
1: No, I just mean like the fight against terroriz- terrorism is not a one-man job. It's multiple people with multiple skills that... And,
0: and you know... do you believe that you have the tools? I do, yeah. But, Brendan, I'm sorry. Well actually I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. I have zero sympathy for this woman. Nothing I've read over the past 24 hours has made me change my mind. I just feel like I'm being asked to feel sympathy to an ISIS defector who joined a terrorist organization who blew up young kids in the Manchester Arena bombings. I mean, am I wrong? Am I am I missing something, Brendan?
3: No, you're not wrong at all. And, you know, let's be clear, first of all, about what this story, this latest revelation does and doesn't tell us. It doesn't say that she was trafficked from Britain to Syria by a, a, a someone who was informing the Canadians. Uh, it, what it actually says is that she went on her own volition all the way to Turkey with the express intention of joining the ISIS death cult in Syria. And it was this guy who helped her at the last stage of the journey to cross from Turkey into Syria. And he was a guy who at the same time was giving information to uh, the Canadian government because he wanted Canadian citizenship at some point. So it's completely untrue the way some people are spinning it, which is that she was trafficked and groomed from Bethnal Green to Syria, by this guy who was also working with the Canadians. She went there because she wanted to join a death cult, which was enslaving women, murdering Christians, and slaughtering the good people of Syria if they didn't believe the same things that ISIS believed. And we have to get real about how serious her act of betrayal to our country was.
0: Because Brendan, there's definitely a push, isn't there, by the elites in this country uh, to try and make us forgive Begum and it feels like they're not going to let this rest. I believe there's a new BBC podcast coming up uh, where she declares she's not a monster. I mean, I just I, I just feel like this is a narrative that is going to run and run. Perhaps I guess hoping that a Labour government, a soft-touch Labour government, a soft-on-crime Labour government, a soft-on-terrorism Labour government may allow her re-entry to the country.
3: Oh, yeah. There is a grotesque attempt to paint her as a victim. I find it really genuinely quite repulsive. People use words like grooming and trafficking to describe how she ended up in Syria. I've seen more sympathy for Shamima Begum among the British left than I have ever seen them express for the Yazidi women who were literally trafficked by ISIS, who were enslaved, who were raped, and who were murdered uh, by the movement that Shamima willingly joined. I've literally heard people people on the left in this country, shed I've seen them shed more tears for Shamima and her predicament than they did for the those Yazidi women. I've also seen them talk about grooming in relation to Shamima Begum far more than they have about the grooming gangs in other parts of the UK, which targeted uh, young women and raped young women as well. So they have an incredibly distorted moral compass where they are desperate to depict Shamima as a victim of Uh, Islamophobia, a victim of British racism, that's apparently why we uh, ripped up her citizenship, and they are painting her as almost like this sympathetic uh, figure who lacks all agency. She didn't know what she was doing, and I think they are undermining the way in which she behaved like a traitor, and she turned her back on this country and joined one of the most evil organisations in the world. We cannot lose sight of that. Brendan O'Neill, thank you so much.
0: Dan Button here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more news-making interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Button tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.